When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of the Book Riot podcast is brought to you by You Can't Escape by Nancy Bush. A fanatic serial killer brands his victims with the devil's sign, burning their flesh to free their souls in the most sinister suspense novel yet by New York Times bestselling author Nancy Bush. Pick up your copy of You Can't Escape and remember, sometimes the biggest mistake is believing you could ever get away. You Can't Escape is on sale wherever books are sold and at kensingtonbooks.com. <laughs> This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 111, and we're recording on Thursday, June 18th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from brookriot.com. Happy Friday to you, Rebecca. And you as well, sir. Were you off last week? You were off last week. I was off last All week. You and Amanda blur. had a little party. Yeah, we did. We did have a party. Uh, and we, we actually have quite a bit of follow-up related to, to last week's show. Um... Was this last? Now they're speaking of running together. So we talked about the story of the North Carolina teacher who read this a gay was, themed fairy tale. Yeah, that was a couple weeks ago. Two weeks ago, I was here yeah. for that one. And the up in arms, the parents, mm-hmm. and he finally resigned. He did. Omar Curry. Uh, um, there was a community hearing in Eflund, North Carolina. Two hundred people showed up to complain. the um, The school ultimately upheld his right to teach it, but he felt intimidated by other administrators uh, and decided to resign. The assistant principal, Meg Goodhand, also has submitted a letter of resignation. She lent Curry the copy of the book that he read in class. Um, Not great news. Not great news. Um, There for that that class, Curry commented that uh, the new policy that the school had implemented that we briefly discussed a couple weeks ago that required teachers to... uh, inform parents in advance about books they read to their students was unrealistic because great teachers pull the text that's right for the moment. Uh, and that new policy would not allow them to do that. The The silver lining here is that Curry plans to stay in education and has already had five job interviews. So he will still be involved in the community in Eflin. But sorry to see it turn that Can way. Can you blame him? Not at all. No, get the hell out of there, man. Mm-hmm. Go somewhere where, I mean... Probably the the sad part, well, there's lots of sad parts. The saddest part is probably they need him the most there. Someplace Absolutely. that wants him, I'm, I'm sure he can do good wherever he goes. But in terms of getting the bang for his, you know, justice buck, probably being in the hornet's nest itself, you know, that's where the, most of the real entrenched problems are. Mm-hmm. And so going to a progressive school, I mean, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like... It's too bad. It's it's too bad. Um, I wish it wasn't that way. Um, so anyway, there's that. Uh, another follow-up. This was from last week. There was a, a piece in the bookseller that we talked about last week with Amanda where uh, there was a sort of a call for publishing, a year of publishing only women mm-hmm. as a way of combating the the, the – the the entrenched biases against women in publishing um, all the way from, I guess, manuscript to executive at publishing company and and every stop in between. Um, And a a publisher has uh, decided to take up with it. 
um, other story and other stories was founded in 2010 to provide a space which great during literature we're reading from all over the world could be published and read in English translation. Um, and they've decided to make 2018 their year of only women. Okay. Because publishing, I, takes, publishing takes forever. Uh, like three years seems a little long, but also it's translation. That's the other thing. So there's mm-hmm. another step in it. Like mm-hmm. you don't just have a manuscript. You have to have uh, the translation work out for it. Um, and this is a small publisher, so they don't have – you know, the huge resources of a giant publisher where maybe they could get things moving a little further. Um, so just here's a paragraph from the her explanation in the Independent. There's a link in the show notes. Um, but our reasons behind only publishing female writers for a year doesn't stop there. It's not just about helping create a women's writing boom. Only publishing women in 2018 means we'll be able to carry out a thorough investigation of how different books reach us and how we can encourage more underrepresented voices to be heard. That I thought that was the most interesting mm-hmm. part of this story, where they're using it as a learning process for themselves. Yeah, it's an interrogation of how they do things and how they acquire books. There's another quote that I found really interesting where she says, we've been putting it about gently for the last few years that we're particularly looking for fiction by women. They could be from anywhere, really. And what do people send us? Why, more exciting, boundary-pushing men, of course. Um, We've talked about this some when we talked about um, the Vita numbers and also the uh, huge disparities between uh, the presence of um, African Americans and other people of color in public publishing and how um, just often just saying that that's what you're looking for does not uh, yield submissions uh, for a variety of reasons. And uh, it looks like and other stories going to have to figure out how they can get uh, more work by women submitted to them. They may have to actively go out and solicit uh, work by women to make that happen to demonstrate that they really are a welcoming and, you know, comfortable, yeah, uh, comfortable place. I think I think this is so Interesting. Um, oh, you didn't get your chance to put your two cents in it because Amanda and I talked about it. What, what yeah. do you think of this idea of publishing only women for a year? I think it's really interesting. It causes. Oh, it, really oh, interesting. No, no, no. Come no, 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 on. No, no, no. I'm getting. I okay, wanna, okay, let me okay, think okay, through okay, it out okay, loud okay, here, okay, man. Okay. I thought we were going to get. All right. Go ahead. No, no, no. I think it's interesting. And I. Th- you know, you, you want a long-term solution. I want a long-term solution. But I think a bunch of experiments like this that increase the visibility of the problem and that also attempt to explore the problem and to get at some root causes and figure out how the publisher can solve those problems and have better representation. If, if every publisher would do this and then every publisher would publish like only works by people of color for a year and really interrogate how their lists end up being their lists and talking to agents and then talking to their editors and and really intensively looking at who submits to them and why those books get submitted to them, what it is about what they're doing that brings certain work in their door and then that prevents other people from feeling comfortable submitting their work there, thinking that their work is welcome. That has a that has the potential to make a lot of impact. Also the only things that can get nominated for book awards and the only things that can be sold are the books that exist. And so if you put out more books by women, then you increase the likelihood that women will be recognized. If you put out more books by people of color, you increase that likelihood. And so I, I love the idea of this alternate future where publishers are very intentional about representation. And I I applaud that about and other stories. You know, it's I hope that they'll track it and that they'll write a lot about it and that we'll get to see. And then I hope that bigger publishers 
are paying attention, because um, that's where the real movement has to take place for systemic change to happen in publishing. Do you know, and I, I don't, and it could be just a ignorance on my part, do some of the big publishers have imprints that are only devoted to to women or people of color, not just like, I don't know, like women's fiction imprints? Or or, um, or do women's fiction titles get distributed among several different imprints? Like, You know, um, I've been in several sales meetings where uh, where publishers will say, well, this imprint is mostly our, that's our women's fiction, or they'll say that's our chiclet imprint. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, then, then they toss out the names of writers that they consider to be, you know, particularly women's fiction, right. um, or just chiclet. And I don't know if those are purely the women's fiction imprints, they may also publish some books by men, but the like the ones I'm thinking of in my head right now are, I can't think of books by men that are on those imprints, but they might exist. Um, but that's sort of de facto only women because of the yeah. genre, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. And, well, and because of all the problems with how we, what people think of as women's fiction. Sure, sure, In sure. general, but yeah. The mandate I don't, and, is not right, published women. Right. I don't know of any imprint at one of the big houses that is specifically devoted to publishing people of color. Um, Be interesting. So, yeah, well, and representation of people of color is just so terrible in publishing in general. Well, I just was thinking of it like as a half measure of like rather have – I mean a small press could maybe do this. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many titles and other stories puts out in a year. Random House is never going to do all women, and we wouldn't want them to. I don't don't think. Um, Maybe maybe we would, but uh, an intermediate step would be Mm – to have an imprint that's only people of color. And maybe yeah. you, uh, that way you have one quota you need to fill, which as far as I know right now, they don't have any. In fact, we have the other problem, which right. I've heard sort of through the grapevine. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if this is true or not, because I've never heard this firsthand. But I've heard people say that they have heard directly and also secondhand themselves that, you know, people say something like, we've already got a book by a Latino in this mm-hmm. category for this year. And so we're all, we're chock full. Whereas if you had an imprint that said, you know, we got to push, this imprint has got to publish 24 authors of color this year. And, you know, that's, that's the mandate. Now, maybe it would then push things from other imprints that way, you know, and sort of just mm-hmm. reorganize the chess pieces. But um, that might be another way of, of uh, thinking about it. Yeah, too. I would love to see that happen. Somebody like Penguin Random House yeah. devote an imprint to writers of color and, you know, put all of the same kinds of effort and marketing juice behind it that they put behind all of their other books to Mm -hmm. make that a success because that that does go a step towards solving the problem of well people of color just don't submit their books to us right or agents just aren't shopping books by people of color to us and there are tons of systemic reasons that prop up that problem um and so if you have a place that's specifically called out for we want books by people of color and that's the only thing that we can publish on this imprint and we need this imprint to be a success. Yeah, I think that's that's that it's a good half measure. It's not as good as full diverse representation right. across all of the lists, but it's a heck of a lot better than that implicit thing that you're talking about that we've both heard from people. And Saeed Jones wrote about it in a, a really beautiful essay mm-hmm. about a month or so ago. Maybe we can um, put the link in the show notes. But he basically says, you know, imagine someone in publishing being like, well, we can't publish like Jonathan Lethem this year because we're already publishing Jonathan Franz. And we've got two literary novels by white guys. Yeah, we're already. all full of Jonathans. We're, we're all out. full up on Jonathans. Well. Uh, 
we can't do it, but whether it's stated explicitly in publisher meetings or just kind of one of those things in the air that there's already a person of color on the list this season, that's our one, uh, it seems to be a it seems to be a real thing. People that I trust have you know, yeah. said that they have heard that happen. Um, yeah, because so, one thing we found, especially as we've done our annual call for contributors, and it's gotten somewhat better, but still something we pay attention to is like we'd open call and we wanted more diverse writers and we just weren't getting as many applications as we wanted to. Mm-hmm. So we had to go out and, you know, do more proactive recruiting because, you know, a lot of reasons that, that happen um, don't feel welcome. They're not sure their voice. They don't see as many people of color as they would feel comfortable with on our existing contributor role. So they're like, you know, is this a place that's going to be good for me or even interested to me at all? Um, so we had to really reach out more than the sort of passive uh, strategy we had, mm-hmm. we, you know, we do for most of our recruiting. And that's how publishing usually works is like they get pitched by agents and they, you know, they, they don't do a whole lot. That's my understanding. If I'm wrong, I'm sorry about this, but my understanding is that they're not sort of going out and looking for people they haven't heard of before uh, yeah. in other places unless they have, um, you know, some hook. Uh, and it's it's so heavily relies on what's already on the publisher's list because agents are looking at, does this imprint publish books like the book that I'm trying to sell? Right. And so if you've got urban fantasy um, with people of color characters and a person of color author and you're looking at that publisher's list and they don't have anything like it, you're probably not going to mm-hmm. submit there. It looks like that's not a thing that they're interested in. And then it's you know, that just vicious cycle rolls on. It's also interesting to think, too, that, you know, if publishing has been white for so long and male for so long, that the the habits and genres and marketing categories um, are themselves products of, you know, mm-hmm. the patriarchy and white supremacy. So, you know, that 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 works by more diverse populations don't neatly fit into pre-existing categories. I'm thinking of Dan Jose Older's work, mm-hmm. for example. Like, it is urban fantasy, but it's also kind of unlike a lot of urban fantasy. Uh, and it's it, noir. Yeah, noir mm-hmm. urban fantasy, but it's also set in real locations. Like, it's, it's enough different that you can imagine that uh, the existing structures would have to strain to accommodate it. And so maybe one thing the existing structures needs to do is like sprout new branches and new mm-hmm. limbs um, that accommodate other kinds of writing. If, you know, it, it's a little, I guess what I'm saying, it's a little hard to expect diverse people to fit in these pre-existing structures when they've been built not for them. Absolutely. They're not, they're not apolitical business structures that you can just sort of swap, hot swap people in and out of. Right. And I think we hear about women's fiction because it's, publishing has been white and male. Well, that's what, so, that's what that is for right, sure. For right? so long. Sure. That, you know, women writing about domestic issues and family issues that gets called women's fiction in a, in a way that Jonathan Franzen or one of the other yeah. white Jonathans of literature could write about the same kinds of issues. And it's just fiction or just literature. And it's more politically acceptable to call something a, a book for women than it would be to to create, you know, sort of a subcategory of like, well, these are just the books for black people. But publishing does that too. bookstores do that too, where they you know, segregate uh, African-American fiction from other 
you know, from the rest of the fiction. Uh, and I've I've read really interesting takes on, you know, the pros and cons. Yeah, both of sides that. of that have but been interesting. Things short to of say. as I would just kind of like to blow publishing up and start over. Um, but short of being able to do that, I think you're right that growing new limbs on the tree that are specifically devoted to representing writers and stories that have not been represented well is a is a really interesting smart step to to take. And I hope that big publishers will start to follow along in these experiments and movement that smaller publishers are willing to take the risks on. Yeah. Cause I don't, I don't know, like for example, um, women's fiction or let's see what's the newest cat, oh, like new adult. Let's new use that. Adult. That's the newest, like major marketing genre I've heard of recently. Maybe there's some others, but like that wasn't really a proactive change. That was more of a reactive change, right? Cause YA is becoming a big thing and realizing that there were, that YA was almost too big of a you know, name that you needed mm-hmm. subgroups to capture the different kinds of tastes and uh, stories and books. Are, so new, new adults sort of rose up or was created or whatever you know, passive or active voice you want to use to accommodate this new space that they needed some way to understand and, and market and develop internal processes um, to produce books. So anyway, I think, I think that's, the, that's probably the way forward is for the internal structures of the big houses especially to make some new pathways. Um, I don't know, maybe flipping the bit from man to woman for a year will do some things. I'm not sure that's the way forward, but maybe it's, it's the path to the path, uh, if that makes any sense mm-hmm. like that. Okay, let's do our first sponsor. Script. They're back. It's scribbed. It's summertime, so the 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 fun thing about summer, I, I always I like to do genre reading in summer, and I'm reading right now uh, a long genre series which I'm never going to get out of. So I, you know, it'll be the it's like winter is coming. It's going to be here forever. Um, but for scribbed, you can try a whole bunch of different things. So. I guess it was a couple summers ago, I caught up with a bunch of YA that I just missed, or because I was an idiot snob when I was in college, I didn't ever get around to reading. So I did stuff like Ender's Game, let's say I did The Giver, um, I did a whole bunch of things like that. And so I'm recommending for you out there, listeners, if you're interested in trying some genres you haven't tried before, Scribd is the best way to do that, because it's the service that gives you unlimited access to a library of more than half a million ebooks and audiobooks. So if that's all you need to know, that you have a million ebooks and audiobooks, and you want to go right now, go to scribd.com slash bookwrite to get started with a free month. That's all you can eat reading and listening because there's audiobooks, comics, and ebooks there. That's scribd, S-C-R-I-B-D.com slash bookwrite. Big publishers, HarperCollins, Simon Schuster, Random House Audiobooks, Tin House, McSweeney's, Counterpoint, anything you are interested in trying, there's, a, there's something in the genre you're interested in trying. Hundreds of collections curated by their team of editors. And as you read and rate and you give recommendations, good or bad, they're going to start to you know, see what you like and what you don't like and try to surface some other stuff for you right there. Uh, 30 days of free, 30 days of unlimited reading and listening. All you can do includes a bunch of audiobooks. I got a couple of picks for it. I know, I know uh, Rebecca does too. A couple of things. So if you are either never have been into graphic novels or you are in a little graphic novels, or you like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, they have the original Eastman and Laird run of black and white Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle comics from the late 80s, or early, or excuse me, mid-80s, which I loved as a kid. They were kind of underground punky, and then they got, now, now they are what they are, which is a mass cultural phenomenon that's been going on for a lot longer than I ever expected. But you can find sort of the original Michelangelo, Leonardo, Donatello, Raphael, Splinter, Shredder, the whole origin story in the original black and white comics, 
are right there for you to peruse. That's also a really good one. On audiobook, they've got the Wrinkle in Time series by Madeline Langle. So if you've got a car trip with the kids, you know, probably not five and six, but seven, eight, nine, ten, got a car trip, audiobooks, listen to them all in a row right there. Those are my script picks for you. I'm uh, reading Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, finally, because uh, I missed it when... Yeah, you missed it. Ha- it. I missed it when it happened. I think I was in college. I remember a bunch of friends reading 99, it. 99, do you remember? Do you um, happen to know? I thought it was early 2000s. Okay, I don't sure, know. It's, fine. it's been a while. Yeah. Uh, but I missed it when it happened, and I'd been meaning to read it forever, and then people had been saying f- since the Night Circus was the big phenomenon that the Night Circus was, that, oh, if you love the Night Circus, you would also like Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Uh, and the BBC America series. Which I heard is great. I'm going to watch that. I've heard yeah, it's good. It I haven't seen it. It started last week, and uh, I... I'm trying to catch up. I'm behind the eight ball on Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norbert. So I'm very slowly reading. It's like a thousand pages long. It's very long. Uh, and I'm, I'm reading like two or 3% of it a night, but so far it's great. It's very enjoyable. Uh, Victorian and a little slow, but in a pleasing way, like I feel pulled right along in the story, even though I kind of just want it to hurry up already. I understand. Uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, since you're over there in your name of the wind, eternal winter, <laughs> you can well, I mean, feel my pain. Uh, name of the wind actually goes like, it's pretty propulsive. It's just super long. Like the second book is mm-hmm. 1120 pages and the first book was 750. So like you, you're looking a good slug. Jonathan Strange and Mr. You say Norrell. I say Norrell in my head. I don't know which mm. is right. Who knows? If you do know conclusively, let us know in the show notes. I think they say Norrell in the show. Oh, do they? Well, that was a pretty good indication then. They would know. <laughs> um, they would uh, They would probably have a good beat on that, I would think. <laughs> so I'll try to say it. Uh, it's it's uh, rolling, like bowling. Mm-hmm. Um, Rowl like towel. Rowl like towel. Uh, yeah, that one, though, you do. It's much. The pacing is careful let's put it that mm-hmm. way it's yeah, careful you have, pacing. To, you have to hang yeah, yeah, for yeah, it yeah, but yeah. i mean i'm enjoying it i'm glad to be catching up with it and i think like you were saying i think scribd is great for catching up with stories that you missed with some recent backlist uh, that you've been thinking of and it's great for just scrolling through their lists and seeing what's there and being like all oh, right i meant to read that thing you'll find hundreds of those it's uh, long also, it's long been rumored there's a sequel Susanna clark is working yes. on a sequel and i don't know any news about it but it um, has um, just long been rumored yeah just long well what, there's something else that's been long. well the the third part of the king killer chronicle which named the wind wiseman sphere mm. is part of there was, a, there was another one that's long been rumored we were just talking about the other day anyway it doesn't matter so <laughs> scribd.com slash book riot get started 30 day free trial 899 a month uh, thereafter so yeah uh, and you'll see more recommendations from us on that page of some of yes. our favorite things that are available at scribd a lot of the book right people in the back channels are using scribd these days we're mm-hmm. just having a conversation about it the other day and trying to figure out giving each other recommendations and um that's that's a lot of fun yeah uh, if you're using it shout us out on twitter let us know what you're reading and how it's going yeah all right let's see i guess we're on to new news finally new we're news we got a hero of the week okay tell week. me about the it's hero of the week been a while since we had a hero of of the week. Uh, so last year, there was an article in The Root about a Florida barbershop that promotes uh, literacy, and their movement sparked something uh, in 
Mobile, Alabama. Hmm. Uh, an attorney named Freddie Stokes decided to launch a program called Books for Boys. He started it up just three weeks ago um, with the intention to establish small libraries of about 75 books each in just two or three barber shops in Mobile. But the response was so overwhelming that he's now setting out to establish libraries in at least six barber shops. And the first one will open in mid-June. So hopefully very soon. But his goal is to have all of the barber shops in their community have libraries in them uh, because he has seen in his community that black boys have a hard time finding books that they identify with for a lot of the reasons that we were talking about earlier in the show that uh, those stories are not as frequently told and so he says when our boys say they don't like to read a lot of that is coming from not being interested in reading about characters that don't look like them so his stockpile has biographies uh, like stories about Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali and Barack Obama and in addition to promoting literacy books for boys aims to raise the participants' self-esteem. Uh, Stokes grew up in public housing and had kind of a disadvantaged uh, childhood, but a teacher inspired him to read um, and to read about successful Black people, and that shaped his life. It helped him to dream bigger and to go after his goals. He was involved in Teach for America, and now he is working in his community. And I think this is a really inspiring and beautiful yeah. grassroots effort to put books that kids can relate to in places where they go um, and to encourage them to to feel rooted in their communities with stories that are relevant to them and to say your story matters. Um, I was thinking about this uh, after, um, I think Kelly found this link for, Kelly mm-hmm. Jensen uh, who works with us at Booker, I found this link and we were, I was been thinking about it because I knew we were going to talk about it on the show. Um, and the other, it's kind of a, um, a twist on the little free library concept. Yeah. Um, but, and I was also thinking like one thing that's tough, uh, I live in Brooklyn, New York and, uh, you know, not a lot of people have a yard here and to do a little free library, you really need a, you know, property that you can control and own, especially in, in urban situations, they don't really work that well because no one, you can't put something on the sidewalk. Like you don't own the sidewalk in front of a apartment building doesn't work that way. So you need to find other spaces. And uh, this is just a, such a brilliant move, like where people go. Um, it's also barbershops, especially uh, I'd imagine in Mobile, Alabama, it's not unlike um, my neighborhood in Brooklyn, New York, where they're often, they're not, you know, there's black barbershops, you know, that, mm-hmm. that's it's where they go. And a so center it's center of community and, and so social it's activity. A, it's, a, it's a different kind of space um, where you can tailor the, the collection of the, the, the little free library, for lack of a better term, to the people who are there, as opposed to a little free, libra- little free library that's just sort of on the street, which I guess could be tailored for the community. That's not something that's really talked about in the little free, mm-hmm. little free library movement, sort of the politics of it. Um, and the, you know, what, what are the strengths and weaknesses? What does it say? Who has books to give away? Um, you know, what kinds of books people might be interested in picking mm-hmm. up. But this one just makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, Stokes taking, also worked for Teach of America for a couple mm-hmm. years, uh, it says here. So, And um, he raised $1,500 on GoFundMe. Yeah. People in the community have given about $800 in cash donations toward the purchase of books. I think just by going to places where people already are mm-hmm. and making books available to them there is so smart and such a powerful step to take. Um, oh, I can't remember the name of the organization. There's a 
big uh, kids literacy organization that does this in doctor's offices. Yes. They put, um, they give doctors, you know, nice picture books to put not just in the waiting rooms, but to actually hand to parents when the parents bring their kids in for appointments or to get their shots or whatever. And the doctors talk to parents about the importance of reading in the kids' homes. I think those doctor's offices are targeted demographically to be able to reach out to households that are less likely Mm -hmm. to have books in their homes already. Like you have to take your kid to the doctor at some point. Um, You might not have time to take your kid to the library or that might not be a part of your community or what feels accessible, but going to places where you're going to go anyway and finding books in those places. It's really smart. Yeah, I was good trying. Job, I was, yeah, good job. I was trying to think of other spaces, at least in 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 Brooklyn or, or the parts of Brooklyn I know where, mm. you know, you might like the DMV might be a good answer. Like oh, everyone's got to the DMV, and um, I've had to go there, you know, get my license renewed or change my address. Mm-hmm. And the you got to wait office? for a post. You got to wait forever, and you know, unless you have all day daycare or you can, you, you got to take your kids with you. Mm-hmm. And you know, if there was a little little free library for kids' books and adult books too, for that matter, yeah, that's another good example. The post office too, uh, especially here, I feel like I'm always waiting online for a long time. Those might be, be some other ideas to think about. Be cool to see them in uh, like bus shelters and metro yeah. stops. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess the thing with all of those is it then becomes a government program. Which right, that's true. The, the one of the elegant pieces of the little free library movement is you don't have to have like. You know, it's one, basically one person making a decision. Like here, Stokes, he has a barbershop and he doesn't have to go through the government red tape and think of the politics of what right. books you have would have to put. You know, we just talked about some guy get, having to resign because of pressure to put, you know, because he, he mm-hmm. read a, a gay story. Like, I don't think you, the, the, yeah, um, you, you don't, don't want, want all that. Of that. I mean, it's better to have them there than not, I guess. But if churches I were just, churches would make sense. Churches. But I was just thinking if I were sort of a private citizen like this guy, where would I try to go? But I can't really do the DMV or bus stop or post office because right. there's government involved. So um, other private businesses might be interesting, like, you know, restaurants maybe mm. um, that, that have kids and, and that nature. Anyway, I thought that was interesting to see. So good job, um, Freddie Stokes. You're a hero, hero, of, the, of, hero the of the week. Uh, let's do a little tech news stuff. Um, for those of you who maybe are, who live in the Amazon ecosystem, there's a new Kindle Paperwhite. I'm not going to talk too much about it, but it has a new... Um, it has the new highest resolution, 300 PPI, that only the Kindle Voyage had before. And the Paperwhite is sort of their most popular, lowest price e-reader. I think it's $119. They also have a new reading font called Bookerly that they've designed from the ground up to be a good reading font. I haven't taken a look at it. I've looked at the new font and did like a little you know, experiment on my laptop at what resolution and size you would probably read on a Paperwhite. It looks pretty good. Um, I, I've been thinking about getting a dedicated e-reader, just an e-ink one. Hmm. that's light because I have my iPad and I have my phone, but like, I don't know. I, I don't love reading on my phone, to be honest. I got, you know, I'm big and I've got big hands and my eyesight isn't what it once was. And my, my iPad is kind of heavy and expensive and the kid play with it. Like, but I also don't want to buy just, you know, and live in the Amazon. You, you, you can't, it's hard to find, I guess what I'm saying, it's hard to find a good e-ink reader that's multi-platform. Uh-huh. Um, but anyway, I, this is the new onward and upward and the, the latest generation of paper whites are really unbelievable e-readers. The only downside and if you are in the Amazon ecosystem it's not really a downside is you're you're locked into Amazon. Yeah. So. I've been uh, I read on my iPad also but I've been thinking about getting the waterproof Kobo yeah. uh, which is I believe it is e-ink just for like travel. But you have to and, buy Kobo, right? Only Kobo. Yeah, but yeah. you can um 
I think you can read like PDFs and stuff through the Kobo app. Yeah. Because I do that on my iPad. So I think you can probably do that on the device too. You just have to sideload them somehow. I don't know. I'm probably not going to do it, but yeah. I like the idea of. Yeah. Because cool the paper, the paper white, just for the example, like six ounces, it's a hundred bucks. You know, that, even my iPad yeah. mini retina, it's 350 bucks mm-hmm. and it weighs a pound. So you not just going to throw it in my bag and I don't want to have to think about it. A pound. Well, I'm just saying, you know, I'm just saying. Um, I mean, I've got to read the King Killer Chronicles for the rest of my life, so I have to have it on <laughs> At me. least you're not carrying those around oh, in I know, I paperback know. or hard a hardcover, man. I think an e-ink reader would fit in my cargo short pocket. That, that's the other thing. You know, I could put it right in there and just carry it on with me at all times. Any free second, I have to get through this uh, to get through it. All right. Uh, you know, this is actually more follow-up. We put it down <laughs> We here. have so much follow-up. So much follow-up. Um, so we talked about the personal letters of Harper Lee, the six of them that were written to her friend Harold Caulfield. I always want to say Holden. I know, not Holden. Uh, between 19... 19- they didn't sell. They I am out. deeply relieved by this yeah, and I encouraged know. by humanity. Yeah, and thank you so much for all of your feedback. And you, their responses sort of mirrored our. Some were like, ah, you know, what are you going to do? And some were like, squick, squick, squick. Um, but they didn't sell. And I guess they must have had a reserve price of some kind. They were hoping to sell for... Uh, Christie's was hoping to sell them for $250,000 or up to $250,000. Yeah. Um, but I don't Mo- see anything about a reserve. I'm sure there was there had to be a minimum. Yeah, most of these times um, they have the, the... The seller will have like, if it doesn't go for X dollars, just pull it. So they didn't even say what their highest unacceptable bid was. But they didn't get what they wanted um, which uh, you uh, makes you feel good. I guess it makes me feel a little better. I'm just not surprised. The letters themselves didn't sound that interesting. Yeah, there are only six of them. I know you I know mean, if it were like Harper Lee's longtime friend has half a dozen letters that she wrote him about an assorted affair she yeah. had or something like someone would have bought those. Or on dis- just... to Truman Capote or you know right. you know that had a little more provenance. Not provenance. That's the wrong word. A little more, uh, little int- more historical interest. Juice. Where this is like, how are you doing, Harold? Uh, the book's great. I'll Gosh, talk to I'm you. really looking forward to getting back to New York. Yeah, my second. I'm working on my second book, and that's it. And then sort of uh, off that we go. So, I guess a satisfying end to that. There. Um, oh um, boy, a bit, I've you know a landmine mm-hmm. for me here. Uh, yep, this is your wheelhouse. Well, for so sure. um, this week and this predated. We were talking about this amongst ourselves a little bit on the back channels. This came out. I guess it's been a it's been a couple of weeks, but it just burbled up to our attention last week mm-hmm. or earlier this week um, that Toni Morrison has been added to the literature humanities syllabus at Columbia University, and it's you know a- adding an author to a, a syllabus isn't really a big deal, but if there is one that's a big deal, Columbia's lit hum syllabus is is one. Now I've got a goose in my throat. <clears throat> couple reasons for that. One, I taught there, and every no, I I, I did, but that's not a reason a big deal. But it's it's one of the remaining great books courses. Um, at elite universities. At Columbia is one. At the University of Chicago, they have a similar one. That all incoming freshmen at Columbia have to take this literature humanities course. It's two semesters, and it's a four-credit-hour course. And there's, there's two two-hour meetings a week. So it's, it's intense, and everyone wants to take it. Engineers have to take it, the whole sort of nine yards. And it's a bedrock foundation of the core curriculum, which is one of these older sorts of liberal arts kinds of things like you don't as opposed to say i guess the, the other example would be somewhere like brown where you create your major from scratch and there are virtually no requirements or my other sort of um, alma maters of teaching the new school which very little requirement then you sort of do what you were going to do 
And Lit Hum is, you know, it's an institution. It's gone, you know, 100 years into the past. And Toni Morrison was just added, becomes the first black author on the sales, which makes for a kind of a shocking headline, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, it's this day and age, blah, blah, blah. Um, there's, you know, and I understand that reaction. And I'm, I'm not really going to defend it except to give it some context. Because it gets to an interesting, I think, beyond Lit Hum, like how we go about teaching literature these days. Isn't um, she also the first American? She is. That, on I the think syllabus? I was the first person to say mm-hmm. that. If I, I will take credit for that. The, I was just setting you up. You're setting me up. Thank you so much for that. To this point, um, when I was teaching, and for a while, the most recent author was Virginia Woolf, and you know, depending on the year, sometimes it would be Mrs. Dalloway, and sometimes it would be um, the Waves. I think this year's the Waves, and that was 1924. So. You know, that, that's part of it as well. Toni Morrison is not only the first black author, she's also the first American author. She's also the first sort of British colony author, right? Think of America as an ex-British colony. Um, but the course itself tries to cover 3,000 years of literary history, uh, Western literary history. So going back all the way to Homer and then sort of coming up all the way through modernism. And then, so Toni Morrison is also the first postmodern author. She's not the first woman. She's also not the first... It depends on how you, in the, you get some weird stuff here, because one thing that's so great about the course is you spend the whole, the whole first semester really basically takes you up to the Bible, if you can believe <laughs> that. Um, and, you know, you get your ancient Greeks, you get your Thucydides, your Herodotus, uh, you get, uh, yeah, basically that's what you get. And in those days, like, so, for example, Augustine was, he was born in what's now Algeria, so the Confessions of St. Augustine, he considers a Punic, which was sort of an African aristocracy. So was does that make Morrison really the first black author? And so one thing that's interesting about Lit Hum and this particular thing is like one thing it reminds us of how much like this black-white binary is an American institution, mm, right? Where Lit Hum's mandate is broader than – well, it's actually – doesn't have anything to do with American sensibilities, <laughs> to be honest. And, and also how new American literature well, is in it's the like, big yeah. scheme of literature. If you're talking about a, taking a semester to get up to the Bible, I took a similar course uh, at Loyola. And yeah, I don't think we even made it past like the 1700s. Yeah. So in, in some ways, this announcement feels like maybe a slap in the face to non-white authors. On the other hand, if, if you look at it, I think of Lit Hum as working on sort of geological literary history time. Like they look at big sort of eras and chunks. And that Morrison is the person that got picked yeah, from if, America to be on if, the syllabus is a huge deal. It's a huge yeah, if, deal. In that context, I'm pretty excited about this announcement yeah. that, um, that that somebody was like, okay, we're it's time. It's time. We'll put, yeah. we'll put an American on this list. We'll put someone contemporary, and that the contemporary American writer is also uh, a very important black writer, and it's Toni Morrison. It, like this is if this is the one shot, mm-hmm. I'm good with this one shot. That's I, I excellent. think she's the only author ever to be alive while being on the syllabus, too, <laughs> which is an interesting uh, an interesting way of looking at it. But so that's one thing. I think if you think, so you take Lit Hum, if you take Lit Hum's stated goals, then this seems right in line. Maybe you, you could have done this a couple years ago. I don't, you know, mm-hmm. you pick and choose a little bit. The stated goals of what we want to offer students is the broad history, a long in-depth study of what literature has been to the West for 3,000 years. I think it's not too early um, but it's not embarrassingly late, especially given the context of we haven't had American, we haven't some British colony, we haven't someone alive. 
it's, it's time, and this is a great choice. Now, if you want to talk about what the mission of teaching literature to college should be, that, that's a different conversation, and certainly one I'm, I'm very open to talking about and I have my own struggles with. Because I, I, should, I should say, I'm horribly biased in Lidhum's favor. Um, I love teaching the course. I learned a lot from it. It was a, I don't use this, it was a magical teaching time for me, the two years I spent teaching literature humanities. Um, I'm a big fan uh, of it. Um, on the other hand, you know, as you just heard us talk about the diversity and other things that we care about, and it's, it's a trick, it's tricky, right? Because if you, if you're really trying to, you, you can't really ask students to do more literature time, like more than two semesters of two hour seminars a week, even if you're not a literature student. So what are you going to cut? You're going to cut Shakespeare? Uh, you know, what, what are you trying to do? Um, or maybe if you're going to spend a year with students in literature, you should think of it as a social justice or some other kind of representative thinking about what literature is. Because it's, it's both a way of understanding how literature works, but it's also historical um, process as well. Like this led to this, led to this, led to mm-hmm. this, led to yeah. this. Um, you know, I, I'd like there to be sort of... A, a optional lit hum three, which is more of a, the chaotic literary world of today or the last hundred years where you get, you know, a sense of what's going on in India and what's going on in China and what's going on in America and Mexico and South America. You know, uh, Morrison's also the first pick from the Americas. You know, we don't have Marquez or um, any of the great South American writers or Mexican writers or Canadians or Atwood or anyone like that. Um, so that I, you know, if I were an undergraduate student and I had two choices, I could pick sort of this lit hum version of let's do the broad strokes, the whole, you know, sort of think of them almost as walking through a literary museum. Or I could do a what's going on now. Uh, think of yourself as a modern literary citizen. What what would be the authors we'd have you read? I don't know that you can do both. I'm not sure. Maybe you can. But it would be a very difficult choice for me to make. Um, I think it's harder to get people to go back and read Thucydides, to be honest, than to get them to read more interesting contemporary stuff on their own later. But maybe it's maybe it's time to give up Thucydides. I don't know. I I, I get so I'm so attached to it. It's hard for me to mm. to cut it up in any particular way. Yeah, I don't know that anything in my regular life in the decade plus since I graduated from college and have now worked in books has been different because I read Thucydides, but it certainly has been different because I read Mm. Morrison and because I read a bunch of contemporary, you know, recent American fiction that shaped my understanding of society. So I don't know, I I would lean towards kicking out Thucydides and, uh, and focusing students on stories yeah. That well, you kick out Thucydides, you get one today, more, but, you know. Right, but like an argument about the the function and purpose of educating people about literature is way beyond our scope uh, today. Yeah. But I, I'm really happy about Morrison. I would love to read like an essay about how they arrived at Toni Morrison for this. Like we are in a very particular time in American history and culture right now where uh, we're talking about race in a front and center way, in a new way where people of color have voices and platforms that they didn't have before. Um, And I think, you know, if, Columbia is recognizing that and is putting a story. I think you and you've said maybe on a previous podcast that in a lot of ways, the like the story of America is a story 
about race. And so to select to have the first book by an American that goes on this list, be uh, not just an American author, and not just a black author, but a black American author who writes about race uh, in America throughout history is is interesting and significant. I think it has some really uh, interesting and exciting potential upsides. But I want to know like how that how that happened and see it go. Further. Well, I mean, I, I can tell you probably I, mean, I know how books are picked. I mean, there's a there's a board and the, the Multicultural Affairs Advisory Board selected, but the Literature Humanities has its own board and they mm. basically pick the syllabus and it changes a little bit from year to year. Mostly it's which Shakespeare are we going to do? <laughs> I mean, I mean, really, it's like, or uh, is it going to be Milton this year? Or I can't remember. Or is it going to be uh, uh, Ovid? Like there's a couple of things that switch out year to year. Um, but it's more of a rotation. You know, we could also get into the, the song of, I don't think we said it, Song of Solomon is the book. I don't think mm. we said which one it was, which is, I think, probably the right pick, you know, um, mm, for, for those. If I had to pick a book to add myself, I'm not sure. I think I might pick Invisible Man myself. Um, just just because having taught the course, the, the Ellison is writing backwards to a lot of the themes in Crime and Punishment and the Inferno and some other things like that. So in terms of connection, it has a little bit more. And it's, um, you know, it's just a little bit different. But, you know, I'm not going to quibble. Mm-hmm. If I, I mean, this, well, is, gun, this is gun to my head stuff. Yeah. Didn't you say, um, I think you told me offline. Yes, I did. Instructors can add things to yeah, their coursework, I, and so you added Ellison. I don't remember, to be honest now, I don't remember if that was officially sanctioned that you could add or Oh, or use, you just did it? Or, well, it was sort of a wink and a nod. If you could make an extra week, you know, you didn't take an extra week for, you know, one of the other things. Um, you can make time, but I taught, I've taught that. I taught uh, Invisible Man at Lit Home, and I, in Lit Home, and I taught Invisible Man at Cooper Union when I did a semester there, um, and had a good response to it. I've never taught Morrison, I should say. Really? Uh, no, I never have. Never really had an opportunity. I lectured about it once, um, but I've never had the chance to teach Morrison in a, in a classroom setting that was my own. Um, so anyway, uh, well, I taught an essay, Playing in the Dark, but that doesn't, I, I don't really, that's a, that's a different thing um, than doing this. So anyway, it's interesting. I, I, I'd like to know, there's some other, there's a couple of the other, um, I think a big couple of big public universities still have a great books course. It makes me want to go back and look at the syllabi. Um, of those things too. I, one thing I found too, and maybe it's just because as I'm getting older, I find a little bit of a desire of myself to go back and look at some of the foundational works. And maybe some of because I had a conversion experience about the Iliad, uh, especially in teaching that. But going back and looking at origins and what the, things are like. I mean, one thing about Lit Hum is like, especially until you get to really to the Enlightenment, the idea of race is so crazy because it's like, you get, you know, Herodotus was born on Halicarnassus, which is an island off Turkey, and Armenians and people being in North Africa and Greece is like, and then you get the Semitic writings of the the Old Testament. It's like, it's all such a, it's not even a melting pot. It's just kind of a, an ecosystem that doesn't correspond to any of the racial and ethnic lines that exist in America as we think about it. Um, and that, that's been interesting for me to think about. It doesn't have to be this way, right? Um, and they have their own allegiances and, and, uh, animosities for sure, but they're not, they're not, uh, they don't follow the fault lines that seem so intractable, especially in America and especially today of all days. Um, anyway, so maybe someday, maybe sometime I'll, I'll teach, I'll get to teach that stuff again and think about it in a different way. But it's, it's a big deal, especially on the academic side of um, undergraduate curriculum. I mean, it's really the, the most, not politically conservative, but the pedagogically conservative literature course there is in terms of what they're trying to do. This is an old way. 
is old magic, as they would say <laughs> in Harry Potter, a way of the thinking old of magic. the old magic of teaching literature this way. And even the old magic has come around. Uh, finally. Okay. Yeah. Where are we okay, going to go more, from? Yeah. We got more college news. Oh, and maybe yeah. This is about uh, new, new magic. Yeah, this is about uh, new magic. <laughs> Tara Schultz, who is a 20-year-old student from UKPA, I think I'm pronouncing that right, California, is uh, taking an English class at Crafton Hills College. And she and her parents object to four of the graphic novels that are on the class's syllabus um, because they believe that they are too violent and pornographic to be read by college students. The four graphic novels are Fun Home by Alison Bechdel, Why the Last Man by Brian K. Vaughan, The Sandman Volume 2, uh, which is the subtitle is The Doll's House by Neil Gaiman, and Persepolis by Marjane Satrapi. Um, she says, I expected Batman and Robin, not pornography. She was provided <laughs> with complete information about because Batman and Robin make so much sense I mean, well, to teach the violent, to 20 year violence and revenge, and, right? You know, yeah, like, uh, Schultz, you know, was provided with complete information about which books would be covered in the class. Boing Boing is just not having it. No. Uh, this piece no. and says, uh, but because she did not pay attention to the syllabus, she and her parents and their friends now want to prohibit everyone from reading the books at the college. Um, the comic book legal defense fund is doing the very good work that they do to fight uh, censorship of comic. I just can't even with this story. Like, first of all, college students are adults. She is 20 years old. And so if a book is not appropriate to be read by college students, you're functionally saying this book is not appropriate to be read by adults who make their own decisions and who are provided with all of the information about the books in advance. Uh, they contend that the teacher should have stood up on the first day of class and warned the students about the content of these graphic novels. Um, man... <laughs> Well, she didn't. She, it's not even that she wanted <laughs> to not read them. She wanted them. Uh, she wants no one eradicated. Yeah, gone. She wants no one to read them. Uh, the college calendar shows that the spring semester began on January twelfth. The last day to drop a course was January thirtieth. She brought up her objections to four of the ten books after January 30th, so she'd been in class for more than a few weeks, um, and her only option at that point was to complete the assigned work or to withdraw and take a zero. And so it seems to me that neither of those options was acceptable to her because she wasn't paying attention to the content of the books that were listed so on the syllabus and apparently to the time frame, and so she needs to nuke the books. I have no sympathy for this. Her father uh, wants the books removed from campus because, quote, there are underaged kids at the campus. Underage which of what? It's possible that there might be underaged kids. Like you got some 17 year olds on a college campus sometimes, but like the mere presence of graphic novels is not going to harm the children. Yeah. You know, um, well, this uh, is clearly, this is clearly frustrating. You know what I've been thinking about though, that's got me thinking about it. Cause this is just not interesting to me, but so I'm trying to think of like, what's interesting about it. And there does seem to be like a weird space between say, and I think we've talked about this before. You and I are sort of both un not necessarily in favor of trigger warnings, but if people are in favor of trigger, trigger warnings, that's sort of up to them. If that makes sense. Yes. Um, and, so should you be able to, what, what can you decide to read for yourself and what can't you decide to read for yourself in a college setting? Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if a lot of the rhetoric, rhetoric, that's a pejorative, a lot of the discussion around trigger warnings has been that trigger warnings just prepare you for what you have to read or do they give you sort of the right to pull the ejector 
Mm. chord. Does that make sense? I don't know uh-huh. the answer to that. Well, I think that depends on, that would depend on the classroom yeah. environment and who the teacher was. I've heard it happen both ways where some instructors, you know, present beloved and say, fair warning, these are the difficult things that happen in beloved. And so if you have mm-hmm. triggers, real trauma triggers from reading these things, um, you can either choose not to read this book and we'll do an alternate, or you can choose not to take this course because the course will expose you to these books, or you can know that this is coming and you can read the book knowing that it's coming. At least you won't be surprised, mm-hmm. but this is not that this is, no. I take personal offense. And so no one should read these things. Right. Well, I'm just saying, what if she had said, you know, I'm personally offended and I don't think it's fair that I have mm. to read this thing. Cause what if, you know, what if someone had, you know, had there had been sort of a sexual assault scene and someone said, you know, that's a real trigger for me and I shouldn't have to read these to complete the course. That's different. Yeah, like, I'm, that I'm is, saying there's I, a line, I just don't know where it is. Well, like, there's yeah, a meaningful trauma, to, trauma and triggers are different yeah. from principles and right. taking offense right. at something. Right. And I do, I think education should force us to examine ideas that we find potentially offensive and to interrogate those or at least to face up to those things and, and wonder mm-hmm. something about them. I have pretty much no sympathy for I find this idea offensive and so I don't want to read about it. Uh, a trigger that resulted from a real traumatic experience, on the other hand, is something that I have a lot of sympathy for and at the very least, do think that college students should get some warning about the content of books that could trigger them and then be allowed to make their own decisions in whatever their educational context is about that. But I think that's a bright line. If you're just offended, that is completely different from I have had a a traumatic experience that has left me with Mm -hmm. triggers. Um, So she says, at least get a warning on the books. At most, I would like the books eradicated from the system. Also very sort of troubling language there. Mm-hmm. I don't want them taught anymore. I don't want anyone else to have read this garbage. Greg Schultz says that he has met with the Crafton Hills College officials about <laughs> the books, and they have disappointingly promised to warn and, future English 250 students about their content. And what even is a father doing involved on a college yeah. campus? Like, uh Right. Yeah. And then, I mean, because like then where do you, where does that stop? Do you go to the library and just sort of go mm-hmm. one by one? Well, and right in with privacy Well, with privacy rules, like a teacher can't talk to a parent if the student is over 18 about like the kids' grades or what they're doing in class or any of those things. So some of this, too, is the college. It looks to me like not drawing appropriate boundaries about parents' involvement. But maybe some of it, too, is it's hairy with graphic novels because you're seeing the thing instead of just reading the words and encountering it in your mind. And so like Fun Home deals with... Bechdel's lesbian identity and her early lesbian relationships. There, uh, there might be some nudity in the drawings. I don't remember. Um, yeah, I was going to say I don't even know exactly what's being like, objected to here. Is right? Is the mere presence of sexuality in a story considered pornographic? Because that's a problem. Nudity, sex, violence, and torture. They also contain obscenities. I mean, come on, <laughs> come on. Oh boy. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. This what is, is this is the anti-hero of the week? Yeah, I don't know. There's something weird about this story that I can't quite put my finger on. Like maybe you maybe you pegged it, which is we're looking for a way out and making a stink is our way out. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But it's you know these things are under siege. This is a, you know the graphic novels, especially in college campuses, seem to be. Everything else in college doesn't seem to, it's, you don't hear about regular prose books being subjects of problems, but it's the, you know, it was Fun Home at College of Charleston, 
you know, there's maybe it's because they long, light, light a couple of fault lines. There's the, the genre one and the medium, but also um, that also becomes ex- an excuse or a reason well, to talk about, I don't want to read about gay people or something. There, well, and there's like weird stigma just about yeah. comics and graphic novels right. and them being unintellectual. And so that might be weighing into it also. But this is, I think this is a nexus of a lot of weird things that I don't like. Um, I'd love to know what the other six books on the syllabus are that she's okay Mm. with, because, you know, the history of American English and the stories that we tell are, uh, these books are rife with... Well, that's what I was going to say. Our great books are rife with with violence, with rape. Um, I have a, a good acquaintance who was going to major in English and started reading the books that were assigned in her early classes. And they were so rapey that she went to her advisor and was like, is this what it's going to be like if I major in English? Am I just going to be reading about these kinds of stories for four years? And the advisor said yes. And so she changed her major. She didn't want to. um, She didn't want to have that experience for a variety of personal reasons. But like that's you're going to encounter those stories. Like would would Schultz be cool with Beloved, but not okay with a graphic novel? Um, I think she wouldn't do very well in Lit Hum. There's a lot of violence <laughs> and sexual assault. That, you know, but old Greek violence is cool. Biblical That's fine. Violence and it's biblical violence is righteous, Jeff. The Book of Job. That's a lot of fun where God just tortures Job just to see if he can stand it. That's super awesome. Um, <laughs> this yeah. is just the, it's like my, uh, the eye roll of the week. I don't know what to make of this other than like, you need to go to college. It is super interesting, though. I mean, again, I'm trying. I'm more interested in the more interesting part, which is this ongoing discussion. We're having more than I don't know if you remember how this going on when you were in college of like the students sort of bringing to bear some say mm. over what they, you know, how and what they're what they're exposed to and how they're exposed to it. From trigger warnings to something like this, like the the whole yeah. spectrum of what you and I sort of, I think, mostly agree on in terms of what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. But like this, I don't remember anyone ever saying anything like, boy, this book is too explicit mm-hmm. or it doesn't jive with my beliefs or like that just you just didn't you were subject to. Yeah, you you were. I've wondered you how many people sat in classes that I sat in and were made uncomfortable by the books mm-hmm. um, or were triggered by them, but couldn't or didn't say anything. I think it's byproduct of the internet and of communities of people who have had shared experiences, being able to talk to each other about them and having voice to talk about um, how they'd like those experiences to be acknowledged and the accommodations that they would like to see made in educational environments and in social environments. And so the college campus is one of the places yeah. that we see that um, it's, we, we are in a really interesting time. Right. And especially as, you know, college has gotten so much more expensive, even since you and I were, well, you're a mm-hmm. little bit younger than I am, but like even the last 20 years that, and one thing the colleges have done is done more to, you know, they're more of a full service student experience. And that makes the students feel, and frankly, maybe they are more of a consumer than a, that whatever the weird relation, you know, it is a weird situation when you think about it, to pay you know, take a Columbia, for example, $50,000 to go to a college mm-hmm. and then be told what you can and can't do. You know, it's like right. it's a very odd uh, yeah. situation to be in. And we have like the combined social phenomenon then of the helicopter parent yes. stuff that I think kicked in after like a, a few years after me. Absolutely. I can't imagine any of my 
peers. I'm uh, 32. I can't imagine any of my peers' parents calling our college oh my God. professors. No. But I've got friends who are in their late 20s who knew people that had that happen or whose parents called them every day to wake them up to make sure they went to class no. because a 20-year-old is you know, can't use an alarm clock. Um, that... I, I think that's a technology-enabled thing mm. as well, and all, it's all tied together. Right. <laughs> yeah, that 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 is interesting, and in that you know that the students feel more emboldened, empowered to express. Or entitled. There's that entitled. You know, all those... Put all the whatever um, prefix mm-hmm. you want to use to titled, m titled, m titled. That's totally a thing. Yeah. Now. Right. To like to say, and I think there's probably parts of it that are good and probably parts of it that are bad. I mean, I'm sure, you know, having been on both sides of the, the podium, um, teachers do some stuff because they're pigheaded and don't think about students. And I think students do some things because they think they know better, even though they don't know anything. You know, like, it's, it's, it's very tricky to say. I don't know what I would say, for example, if I was teaching, uh, boy, I don't know. You know, there's the, I'm not, I, get, I don't think I'm spoiling uh, the Oristaya when, <laughs> when I say, you know, that uh, Agamemnon sacrifices his daughter, Ephigenia uh, Aulis, so that the, the, he get a favorable wind to get to Troy. And there's this really pretty graphic, horrible scene where Iphigenia is like on the sacrificial table, like screaming his dad's name and she, he plunges the knife in. Like, what would I say? What would I have said if a, if a student said, you know, boy, that was really traumatic for me? You know, I've got something that happened to me that that makes, you know, I really have a visceral response and like, and I believe them, like, what would I do? I have no idea what I've done. Like, excuse them from a question on the final that had to do with, and it's very tricky. I I don't know the right answer and, Mm -hmm. and it's not mine to decide, but I just am sort of acknowledging the difficulty that you could, you could run into as these sort of two worldviews collide. And I guess that's what really it is. There's sort of multiple worldviews colliding. Right. It's um, the old magic and the, the old magic ways. and the new magic. Um, <laughs> and I, I think, I don't think the old, the new magic wants the old magic to go away necessarily. Um, and maybe the old magic doesn't want the new magic to, to exist at all. Maybe that's the, maybe that's the problem. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we got philosophical there. I, I, we, we did. We've togas had a philosophical at the, at the hour. Academy. Uh, let's talk about... <laughs> it's toga, toga weather, man. Yeah, it definitely is uh, toga weather. <laughs> so tell me about some, some new books. Oh, it's been such a good week for new books this week. Uh, the first is Summer Long by Dean Bacopoulos. This is not quite The Band Gets Back Together, but it does... One of the things I love in fiction, uh, which is, you know, tell a really compressed story. Uh, It's about a married couple who live in Grinnell, Iowa. They're in their late 30s. They have kids. He is the like star real estate agent of the town, or he has been the star real estate agent, but maybe things are not going so well. She's a former writer and academic who has not worked in several years and has been raising their kids. And they are having that like beginning of a midlife crisis thing and maybe the seven year itch situation with their marriage or longer than seven years. It's summer in Grinnell. It's really hot and everybody is losing their minds. Uh, The husband is like out for a walk one night and sees this woman lying underneath a tree and thinks maybe she has passed out. And it turns out she's just really stoned. they meet each other and he goes and starts smoking weed with her, like spending the night just sleeping next to her in a hammock because that's a totally normal thing to do. Uh, the wife goes out for her usual late night run, but finds herself at the local like stop and shop bumming cigarettes and drinks off of another local who has returned home to care for his father. They are attracted to each other, but nothing really happens. So and he the like the guy from the stop and shop is somehow also friends with the woman 
that the husband is sleeping with in the hammock. Um, and everybody's lives get all tangled up when a big uh, revelation happens about a secret that the husband has been keeping from the wife. And then over the course of the summer, the temperatures rise and everyone just loses their minds a little bit more. Uh, it's it, like domestic drama at its best. I loved this book. <laughs> uh, <laughs> complicated marriages and summer drama. Like when you are sweating outside and you need something to read that just feels perfect for it, Summer Long by Dean Bacopoulos. It's so, so great. I really loved it. Um, also out this week is Modern Romance by Aziz Ansari. This is part dating memoir where Ansari tells his own stories about dating and technology and, you know, going nuts after texting a woman and seeing those three little dots pop up like she was responding, but then her not actually responding for several days <laughs> uh, and you know, using Tinder and using online dating and how technology has changed uh, the way that we look for love and the way that we just interact with each other. He talks about, you know, like when our parents were dating each other, you would have to wait for a, an actual landline phone call. And sometimes that might take days. But now if you text someone and they don't respond within a few hours, you can play that game in your head of generating all the possible reasons that they might not be responding to you. Right. Um, it's Ansari's voice is so great. It's so funny. Uh, but he also teamed up with a sociologist named Eric Kleinenberg. Um, who pulled together a bunch of data about uh, about technology and dating. Uh, if you read Dataclism by Christian Rudder from OkCupid okay last year, some of the sort of similar ideas, but then Ansari and Kleinenberg conducted their own studies and focus groups where they talked to all kinds of people about their experiences with technology and romance. And it's it's good. Um, I was frustrated by some like unevenness in the narrative voices shifts where it switched from where it felt like it switched from Ansari talking to like Kleinenberg just sort of dumping data mm. On you, but the data stuff is interesting. If you like those, you know, here's a pie chart about where people met their the people they married in 1950 and where people met the people they married in 2010. Um, I found a lot to like in the book. Overall, I do recommend it. I think it's really interesting and great, um, and certainly an interesting choice for a celebrity to make about how it they is do a, a memoir. Yeah, yeah. Um, I but it was and a much real pleasure more, and much more like less m memoirish than you might expect, you know, like yes. you look back at bossy pants or yes, please, or, you know, yes, those, yeah. kind of in the same genre as those it's not, things. Yeah. It's not like a full life story yeah. from Aziz Ansari. We could, we sort of meet him in his late twenties and early thirties and follow his, uh, his trajectory there. It's filled with interesting tidbits. Um, I said this on all the books this week, but, uh, the most popular time for sending sexts is Tuesdays between 10 AM and noon. Well, Who knew? You know, the long week stretched out in front of you. I guess so. Right, weekend in the rearview mirror. So you can pick up some interesting oh. uh, facts to drop at those dinner parties we all go to. Do you know to. if he narrates the audiobook? Do you know? He does. Okay. He does. Um, our coworker, uh, Rachel Smalter Hall, is listening to the audiobook and she said it's really, it, it's great and adds to the experience. I kind of wish that I had listened to it on audio rather than reading it in print, but I got to see those pie charts. <laughs> That's an you know what? <laughs> Uh, speaking of uh, speaking of pie charts, boy, that uh, behavior book that I was telling you about uh, mm. misbehavior. I can't. What well, I can never read the Bob <laughs> Thaler book about behavioral economics. I can never, something about making something behavior, making behavior but it's not called misbehaving. Making I think maybe is what it's called. There's a lot of charts and graphs, and it's just like you can see in the attached PDF. I'm like, oh, groan, because I'm like oh. out walking the street. Like, there's no way I'm going to go back. <laughs> Let me and, just pull up the yeah, attached PDF. <laughs> Let me get out my fax machine and I'll see if I can pull that up for you. <laughs> and um, your time travel. Yeah. <laughs> 
maybe the biggest book out this week, uh, which I have oh, not read yes, yet, duh. but I'm gonna. Gray by E.L. James was released uh, yesterday as we're recording this on the 18th. On Fifty Shades of Grey, as told by Christian Grey, um, from his point of view. It's 576 pages long. Uh, we speculated a couple weeks ago when the announcement came out that maybe this would be shorter, nope. but it is not. It's basically the whole first Fifty Shades of Grey book, but told from his perspective. Um, that happened. It came out on the Thursday because June 18th is Christian oh, Grey's right. birthday yes, 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 yes. in the story. And if you want to read something that will creep you out in wonderful ways, Broken Monsters by Lauren Bucus is out in paperback this week. It's a um, functionally a detective crime procedural set in Detroit about a detective who's trying to figure out who the serial killer is that is uh, detaching people's body parts and sewing them onto animals' bodies and using them in art displays. But there's also a lot of interesting stuff about technology and some really trippy sections near the end that felt to me like a true detective fever dream. Um, really great, scary stuff. And that's paperback this week. And those are new books. And that's our show. Yes. As always, you can find show notes to this show and back episodes of the Book Riot podcast at bookriot.com slash podcast. You can email us with feedback, tips, um, uh, ideas, questions, Podcast at bookriot.com. You can follow me. You can weigh in on Thucydides Yeah, you can weigh Tony in on Morrison. Tony Morrison versus uh, Herodotus uh, of Her uh, or Heraclitus or whoever else. Whatever H um, Greek you want to ex uh, expel from the literary canon. Uh, let's see. You can find us on Twitter at uh, the Jeff O'Neill. My last name is O'Neill, O-Postrophe N-E-L. But Twitter doesn't allow punctuation, which the tyranny of Twitter doesn't allow me to actually spell my name. <laughs> That's the thing about Twitter we're going to be mad about today. <laughs> well, I just got a long list. You just sort of tick them off as you go. <laughs> it's right. like an advent calendar of being pissed off at Twitter. You just open up a new door uh, every today, day. Today, punctuation. Today, today, no apostrophe. Well, you have a hyphen in your last name. This can't make you thrilled either. Uh, <laughs> Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. I think I think that's it. That we don't. What else do we tell them? Scribd.com slash bookriot. Thank you so much for sponsoring the show. As always, uh, we'll talk to you guys uh, next week. Have a good one. Bye.